You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, today we are wrapping up our study in the book of Esther. And for those of you who have just been thinking, man, when is Jim finally going to preach a message on the Jewish feast of Purim? Today's your day. It is at the end of this book. Uh, if you have not been here for a lot of this series, it's all online. I did a lot more um, setup uh, throughout the different this, this series. I think it's important to get in the context of actually what's happening here. We'll be in Esther chapter 9 today. Um, but the past, uh, the Remember, this is the, the Jews that are in um, under this, uh, the, the Persians or the empire. The Jews are living there in the capital city of Susa. And this is the story of Hadassah or Esther and Mordecai, who is a relative who has taken her in. Uh, Esther was an orphan. So the Persian king Xerxes was having these big feasts, plotting to go and attack the Greeks. He summons his wife. She dishonors him. And uh, he kicks the queen off the throne and basically banishes her and ruins her life. So then she is eventually replaced with this young Jewish woman named Esther. And Esther uh, was raised by uh, Mordecai. And they're the two main sort of protagonists in the story. Um, one of the bad guys in the story, the antagonist, Haman. Haman is the, uh, he's the, the evil right-hand man to King Xerxes. And uh, if you remember, he, he tricks Xerxes, he kind of gets crossways with Mordecai, and he tricks Xerxes into writing a decree um, by lying to him to say, uh, write a decree to say, there's Jews among you in the Persian Empire, and let's pick a day and we will slaughter them. It's, dis it's disgusting. That's right there in the scriptures. So Haman does this, Xerxes gives in, and in Esther chapter 3, they're trying to figure out, um, like, listen to how cold this is. Let's pick a day for this annihilation to happen, and they're casting lots. So it's um, sort, of, sort of like gambling. You could think of it like that. Um, but they're casting these lots, and whatever the lot falls to, that was the day the edict was going to take effect. So the lot, it fell to their month of Adar, it's called. That's our um, end of February, beginning of March. And um, it, took, it took a long time for, um, for the kingdom to get for everybody in the kingdom to get notified of the plan and get in sync. And so it took almost a year. And in the meantime, um, you have this incredible story of, uh, of Esther who did remarkable things. This young, young Jewish woman did remarkable things and kind of took the Jewish people on her back and had to go and uh, confront King Ahasuerus, it says, or King Xerxes. So Mordecai gets word about this, uh, this edict that's going out and figures Esther is the only one that can stop it. And he says, you need to go before the king. And if you remember the story, it is, uh, he says, maybe you were put here for such a time as this. And she says, call God's people to pray, to fast. I am going to walk into King Xerxes' chamber and to walk into the palace. And if I perish, I perish. She walks in the room, and if the king holds out the scepter to her, then she's okay. And if he doesn't, then she's supposed to be killed. All the percentages said, even though she's the queen, she hadn't seen him in a month, she should have been killed. But I just feel like the hand of God reached down and picked up Xerxes' hand, and he held out the scepter, and she came forward, and he spares her. And he says, what is it that you want? Ask it of me, my queen, up to half the kingdom. And she says, I just want to have a little banquet just a little supper. I'm going to make something for you and Haman. 
And Haman goes, wow, I'm like in the inner circle of inner circles now. She wants to have a meal with me and King Xerxes. Unfortunately for him, at the meal, she calls him out. And she says, he has been tricking you. He is trying to kill the Jewish people. And then she says, and I'm Jewish. And so there's a lot more to the story. But the long, the long and short of it is, Xerxes has Haman killed and now replaces him with Mordecai as his right-hand man. And so there's a, they can't just retract the edict, but what they can do is they can send out a, a new edict throughout the land. And the new edict said that now the Jews are able to defend themselves against what was happening. And you'll see, in fact, in the NIV, it says the tables were turned because um, the Jews started having such victory over them. Let me read this to you. I'm going to um, read from chapter 9, uh, where we'll start in chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll get through quite a bit of this, but that's the context for what we're seeing today. And it says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, that's February, March, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's what we talked about last week. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and governors and royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And verse 7 says, and also killed, and then he names them, and go to verse 10, the 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict and let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Susa. The 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now it's gonna talk about the rest of the kingdom. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts and food to one another. 
Verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same two-day feast year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. What a celebration. What a reversal has happened. Like, have you caught this? Like, if you're Jewish living in that time, think about the very beginning. You've got um, King Xerxes is there, and he is feasting. It is a strong king, and the Jewish people are weak in the empire. And then at the end, what happens? You see King Xerxes kind of going, hey, Esther, whatever it is you want. Now Xerxes has become weak, and now what's happening with the Jews? They are feasting. The tables have been turned. They are are realizing we should have been dead, but the sovereign hand of God kept us alive. So yeah, they're feasting, they're celebrating, they're sending food, they're sending gifts to one another, and this is the Feast of Purim. So we're going to talk about it for just a few minutes here. The Feast of Purim, and there's two simple questions. One is what is it, and the second one is who cares? Because I get that like here we are in our day and age, and we might go, that's, we'll get some what is it, that's the research kind of question, like it's nice to just kind of learn new facts and new information, but then we always want to move to that, that kind of relevance question about, is there an implication for our own lives here today? By the way, I would just say as a pastor for a moment, I would say we tend to do one of these two things. I just want to get to the relevance and we don't really soak in what, what, what happened? What did this actually mean? Or we just become obsessed with knowledge and knowledge and knowledge, but we're just the same people and we're just puffed up with all this knowledge. And the way we're supposed to work as Christians is to say, I want to learn, and I want to hear, and I want to understand the background and the context and what this is, and then say, Lord, what would you have for me today from this, or us as a community from this? So what is it? Let's start there. So you just heard the story about what it is. It's the Feast of Purim, uh, or the Feast of Lots which is another word. Purim is the plural of poor. We'll see in just a second. Um, But it's sometimes called the Feast of Lots. Lots are those things in the ancient world they would cast. Sometimes um, they were done in a a bit of a pagan way. They thought they um, they they were cast and the spirits would sort of guide them as they were kind of throwing dice sometimes is what it would look like. Um, Sometimes uh, it wasn't quite that and and it was actually one of the ways they would say God might speak to you through that um, back in that day anyway. If you remember when Christ is on the cross, it says they they were casting lots for his clothing for his few meager possessions that he has, the people, I mean, think how hard-hearted this is to be right in front of him and just sit there casting lots, casting lots, casting lots, trying to gamble and say, I get this, I get this, you get this. When the disciples needed to replace uh, Judas, if you remember, he hanged himself, and so they needed to replace him. And so in Acts chapter one, it talks about they cast lots and the lots fell to Matthias. And so Matthias was the one that rose up to um, to replace Judas. Um, the, the Feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M, is named after P-U-R, poor, because if you remember, when they were trying to figure out um, what day should we carry out these orders against the Jews, they cast poor. They cast lots. 
In 923, it says this. It says, so the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. That was declaring a feast day to celebrate um, their victory. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, P-U-R, that is cast lots to crush and destroy them. Then verse 25, but when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. So it's the plural of this idea of Pur. So it has this ironic name to it that you can see. They're saying this is the time back when they cast lots to see when they were going to kill us. And they couldn't. And so we are feasting and we are celebrating. They are celebrating that they were freed from certain death, from the hand of a brutal enemy by God's work through this young woman named Esther. Now, there's a lot of history to this <clears throat> in the thing called the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish teachings from the, um, about 200 AD is when it was compiled anyway, um, that has, it has a lot about this feast. And um, the day before the feast, sometimes two days before, but usually the day before, what they would do is they would gather and they would read the entire book of Esther. Because the idea is we want you to be reminded of what we're actually going um, to be celebrating on the next day at this feast. And so they would gather and they would read the book of Esther. Um, <clears throat> it was a two-day feast. The, the book of uh, Second Maccabees calls it Mordecai's Day, the Feast of Purim. It is Mordecai's Day. It starts on Mordecai's Day. And some of the feasts have a little, um, we'll say, solemnity to them. I don't know if they're somber necessarily, but there's a, there's a real high sacredness to them. When you read about this <clears throat> in Jewish history, um, some of them actually say it's a, it's a feast of excess. Eat. Eat a lot. Eat for days and just savor this time and this feasting. And, you know, normally if a party is like this, man, make this party like this. Like ramp it up. This is, there, there's, no, there's no tears. This is celebrating what God has done and how he has saved his people. And why would they not? I mean, you read that story of Esther. If you're Jewish especially, you read that story of Esther and your heart is just so moved by what the Lord has done to preserve you as a people. And man, it is a day of gladness. Um, the historian Josephus actually says like this, talking, he has a whole thing about the Feast of Purim as well. It says, so the affairs of Jews were better than they could have hoped for. And this was the state of the Jews under the reign of Xerxes. They have a lot to celebrate, and he's saying it was better than they could have hoped for. <clears throat> Let's talk about this for just a moment. The very simple truth I want you to hear is feasting can lead to worship. When is the last time you heard a sermon and the application was go eat? <laughs> When's the last time you heard it on Super Bowl Sunday, by the way, which now you don't have to feel guilty about several thousand calories you're probably about to, uh, to consume. Feasting can lead to worship. And I think, I think today one of, the things that, one of the things that happens is when we think of feasting, especially today, and you think of partying, you think of, um, or I think of like debauchery. 
I think of uh, a little, uh, you know, um, the, the, the partying and everything that comes along with that and, and it's, it's overindulgence, it's drinking too much and your defenses are down and it's difficult to honor the Lord. And so sometimes we go, that's what the world does. We shouldn't do that. We should be all prim and proper. And you should, man, you should see this. In the scriptures, you just see feast. Enjoy good food that God has given you and enjoy it with his people. When, they, when they're wandering in the wilderness, and they're getting the manna falling from heaven. How old do you think that would have got? I don't know if you get used to it over time or whatever it is, but the manna is falling and they're eating it and that is their meal. And then what does he call the promised land that he's leading them to? The land flowing with milk and honey, the good stuff. You are gonna get to go and you are gonna get to eat. If you think about Jewish history, you know how many feasts they have? They have a ton of them. You've got the Feast of Harvest, the Weeks, Booths and Tabernacles, sometimes it's called, the Feast of Ingathering. Solomon builds a temple and he celebrates. And it's like, how can we give glory to God? And he goes, I know, let's have a week-long feast. And so they just have a feast and celebrate God's goodness for an entire week. Wedding days, Jewish weddings, especially in that culture, were Days of celebrating and eating and just being with other believers. Think about the prodigal son, the son that abandoned his, give me, give me my inheritance now, and he leaves, and he goes, and then he's sitting there with the pigs, and he goes, man, I, I would have it better if I go be a servant at my father's house. I'm just eating the slop with the pigs. And what happens? He comes to his senses. It says, he arose, came to his father, but while he was a long way off, this is so moving, his father saw him and he felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, to give the most striking contrast, called to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat, and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. What does it describe in glory with God one day? The wedding supper of the lamb, or the wedding banquet of the lamb. It's the same word that could be translated feast. It's trying to picture what's the most glorious, wonderful thing we have to look forward to, and it's we sit down in this fellowship with him, and we feast. And the early church, you know what they used to do on Christmas? It was one of the biggest feasts of the year. They were saying, this is the day to celebrate. What would we rather do than get all of God's people together and just eat? And so if you look back, and you, because I'm wondering, like, why, why is it that if you gather with fellow believers and you just have great food and drink and laughter and times together, why is it so sweet? A few things have come up. <clears throat> First of all, when you eat, it is one of the few activities that you do that hits all five of the senses that God has given you. You think about taste is probably the, the, uh, the obvious one. All the different things you can taste. If you have some kind of a feast, if you have like a buffet or you have a lot of food sitting out, it's so, it's so great because you get to, like your mouth sort of pre-tastes even the food before you even get the ones that you know will be good for you taste. What about seeing? We live in a culture that they get their food. Have you been on Instagram? They get their food and they put it down and go, let's move the plates out of the way and all that and take pictures and post it online. 
like the visual aspect. Like my wife was real good with this. Like, because um, before when I was a single guy, I did not care about like presentation of food at a at a meal at all. I just figured if the guy took like you know thirty seconds to, to you know push it around and make it look all pretty, like that's. I could have been eating 30 seconds ago is kind of the way that I was looking at it, right? And then now, now I've learned to appreciate a little more. And she's like, look at that. Ooh, that, looks so, that looks just cool. Like it, it, there's an extra element there. In fact, we had one. I had a, I had a little run I went on with my kids, uh, for, run like a season, where I, we'd go to King Super and we would, I would say, you got to pick out a fruit you've never had before and we're going to eat it. And have you ever seen, they have like all the normal fruit, then they have like a bunch of fruit that I don't know anybody that eats it, but it's like back in its own separate section. And I was like, we're going back to the secret fruit section. And we go back there and I'm like, you pick it out, whatever you want to do. And I was like, God, these look so weird. And I'm, oh, look at that name. And I'm just kind of laughing. And my wife very brilliantly just looks and over their shoulders just, go, just says something to the effect of, gosh, God is so creative that look at all those different fruits. And I went, oh, that was good. And immediately... What we're doing is going, look at what God did, because we're taking that in and we're seeing it. I think of the sound as well, and not just like your snap, crackle, pop that you get with your Rice Krispies or anything like that. I think of um, partly, you know, like when we were in Texas, you'd get Tex-Mex all the time and they put the lemons on the fajitas as they're coming to you and it sounds like somebody's like cheering for you as they come. It's like, you know, and you hear it and you just start to anticipate what's happening. But even this, even if the food doesn't make any noise, like as as you're sitting there eating, what do you hear? You hear conversation. You hear forks that are clinking on the plate. You might even hear people chewing or something like that. And sometimes that's not the best, but it does remind you when you're eating and you're with other people, you remember I am not alone. God's people are here with me. My wife would say one of the biggest compliments is when there's no sound because everybody gets their food and puts it, she's made for us and we puts it in our mouth and no one wants to talk. No one wants to use their mouth for anything except savoring what she's just given us. So sometimes even the silence can be pretty powerful. You think about touch and feel, how things feel differently in your throat, on your fork, on your tongue. If they're hot, they're cold. If they're crunchy, if they're smooth. And then, you know, you obviously smell is the fifth sense where, like, my wife's a great cook. I'm so blessed. I'll walk in and there'll be so often I'll go, oh, like just as you walk in the door and your body just like, get ready. This is going to be good. And I will tell her that smells amazing. And she'll have made it like 50 times. And I still go, I don't know what it is. I don't remember which smell goes with what thing, but I already know that I'm about to like this. So thank you. So you are sitting there. Think about this. You are there, and all the senses that God has given us, all of a sudden, we are now savoring something that is a gift of his. And then if you think, too, when you think about the idea of a feast, it's the idea of fellowship. There are other people here with me. It's this intimate act that reminds us we're not alone. You know, there's a, <clears throat> a passage in Revelation that people probably quote all the time, and I missed an element of it. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. It is this intimate act of fellowship of the presence of other people is bolstering to our soul. 
And so we've got this unique thing that God has made where all five of our senses get hit. And then we think meals with friends and family, whoever it might be around us, those are meant to be satisfying. And if we, we live in a time where we go, well, if that's kind of associated with you know, excess and, and gluttony and debauchery and all that, let me just reclaim that a little bit to say it is good and right for God's people to get together and to just savor what he's given us. And that's one way to do it. Now, I did mention we're good at sinning. And so, like, it's easy to get together, and, and that's our excuse for gluttony. That's not what we're talking about. Or over-drinking, or so, that's not what we're talking about. Or being so thoughtless and careless that maybe somebody who has a struggle with alcohol comes in and you go, I don't care, I'm kind of doing my, th- that, that's thoughtless, and that's not, that's not what we're talking about either. We're talking about getting together and savoring what God has given us. You know, a couple ways that I think this plays out. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> if you're a cook, Sometimes my wife doesn't feel like the fact that she cooks is as big of a deal as everybody else in the family thinks it is. If you're a cook, please don't ever think, well, I mean, I can cook. Think of it like this. You can create beautiful meals that can stir people's heart to worship their creator all the more. That's a calling that you have. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, boy, this sounds really great. Like, I'd love to feast and get together and all that, but finances are tight or it's just me or, you know, I, I, I'm not real connected with a whole bunch of people. We have supper clubs here at the church. You know what they're for? Get together and just sit and, and talk and just be with other people and just enjoy. Well, they brought this dish and they brought this dish. And if you're at a spot going, I don't know that I can bring a dish, don't even worry about it. Just, we want you there. Just come and be with people. And partake in what God has given. I'm doing this today, actually, because it's Super Bowl Sunday. I'm not a gambling man. I do have a standing annual bet that if, if the Cowboys don't make the Super Bowl, I will smoke a brisket for our entire small group, which basically becomes me budgeting for an annual brisket that I got to do. It's a little sad. I don't think they're going to make it this year. I don't know. I had not started yet, but I don't think they're going to make it. But like when we have our, our small group over and I'm thinking about like even today to just pause and, and, and kick back and just look and go, look at these people and look at this thing that's about to just assault all five of our senses. That is a good thing to do and it is something that is given to us by God. I'll give you a very quick who cares. Why should we care about this? Think of this story. The Jews facing certain death, God sent an intermediary, Esther, the only one who was able to go and stand before the king and intercede on their behalf. And they thought they were going to receive death, but instead they received life, more than they could hope for. And so they ate, and they celebrated, they feasted. As Christians... We are facing and we deserve death because of our sin. Yet God sent an intermediary, the only one who could go and stand before our heavenly father on our behalf to intercede for us. And where we should receive death as a penalty for our sin, instead we are given life more than we could have hoped for. Eternal life with him.